So next Sunday is Easter Sunday, and uh, that, that means a, a number of things, but one that I want to remind you of is next Sunday especially, have your friendly game on, right? Don't, don't be the hermit Christian next Sunday. There are going to be lots of friends and guests, and whether you welcome them warmly in the name and with the love of Christ could really be a difference maker for them. So... Uh, come, come friendly next week. Spoiler alert, I'm going to ask you to do it every week after that too. But next week, uh, next week uh, especially, plan to, uh, plan to reach out. Also, room probably be a little fuller next week, so you're probably not going to get your usual seat. So just plan to deal with that and, uh, and occupy this section over here that we're still scared of. So if y'all can help with that, that would be awesome. Let me start with a riddle. Um, when is the church like termites? Yeah, you're thinking all kinds of really cool answers. The New Yorker magazine article I read made me think of that, and they answered in a really beautiful way accidentally because it's in the New Yorker. They say termite, mound, uh, termite mounds can reach as high as 30 feet. Based on their tiny size of the termite, that's the equivalent of humans building something twice as tall as the 2,722-foot-high Burj Khalifa in Dubai. The interior of a termite mound is an intricate structure of interweaving tunnels and passageways, radiating chambers, galleries, archways, and spiral staircases. To build a mound, termites move vast quantities of mud and water. In the course of a year, 11 pounds of termites can move about 364 pounds of dirt and 3,300 pounds of water. The point of all this construction is not to have a place to dwell. The colony lives in a nest six to seven feet below the mound, but to be able to breathe. The mound acts as a lung for the colony, managing the exchange of gases, leveraging small changes in wind speed to inhale and exhale. Termites appear to do all this without any centralized planning. There are no architects, engineers, or blueprints. The termite mound isn't just a building. It's much more like a body, a self-regulating organic process that always reacts to its changing environment. Scientists claim that individual termites are not very intelligent. You can see where I'm going with this. Right? <laughs> they lack memory and ability to learn. Put a few termites into a Petri dish and they wander around aimlessly, but put enough termites together in the right conditions and they will build you a cathedral. Now we too are being pressed together as God's people to build a cathedral. It's called the church. It's not made of brick and mortar, but it's made, not, not made of dirt and water either. It's made of folk, folk like you and me. And the design and desire, the passionate prayer of Jesus is that we would come together in mysterious, spirit-directed unity and love and be a cathedral with open doors to a watching world. That's what Jesus is praying in his John 17 prayer for his disciples the night before the cross. Um, and that's going to be our continued focus this morning. You can open your Bibles to John 17, verse 20. We'll finish the prayer today. This expresses Jesus' great longing for our church. Okay. Let me read it to you, starting in verse 20. 
Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, the 11 disciples who are there with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we open your word now, open our hearts and minds to receive it by the good work of your spirit, we pray. Amen. So this is the end of Jesus' last night prayer. He's started it focusing primarily on the 11 disciples who were there, the remaining 11 disciples there with him. But now he turns his thoughts towards another group of disciples that we could call future disciples. Look at how it starts again, verse 20. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, the disciples with him, but for those, also for those who will believe in me through their word. So who is Jesus praying for? in these last words of his prayer, right? Who is on his heart and mind just hours before he's tortured to death? We are. Future disciples, we are. He's praying into the future for us. Um, We are the ones that would come to believe through the unbroken chain of the word of the original disciples. And there's several really, really significant things in in this whole uh, idea. What, Jesus knows that his disciples are about to fail him, right? Uh, but he has confidence that they will ultimately recover and be faithful. They will, by their word, lead others to follow Jesus, right? And this is the way that the good news about Jesus has spread from the very beginning. Uh, all the way back, remember the Samaritan woman story in, in John chapter 4? Um, She ran back to her village to tell the townsfolk that she had met Jesus. And this is the way it goes. It says in John chapter 4, Many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. And what was her testimony? Just this simple invitation. She said, Come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? See, faith comes to others by the word of these disciples, by our word. It just underscores for us how important it is that we are speaking of Christ to our friends, right? This is why it matters so much that we are teaching here our children on Sunday mornings. It's why it matters so much that some of you are, are serving in our student ministry in their D groups. The word that grants faith passes from believing disciples to future disciples, right? That's how it works. We are the recipients of an unbroken chain of faithfulness from the first disciples until now. And we're encouraged, Peter says, 
to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So this morning, it's good to stop and ask, are you prepared? Are you prepared to give an explanation for the hope of Christ that you hold to? Um, Here's a simple way to explain the core of the gospel that we often use around here to let people know what the good news about Jesus is in the simplest of ways. It's called the three circles. Watch this video. It's like a minute and a half. Watch this. So we live in this world, and it's characterized by brokenness. We don't have to look very hard to see. There are things like disease, disasters, wars. There's a lot of pain in this world, but this is not God's original design. God has a perfect design. And the way that we have gotten ourselves into brokenness is through something that the Bible calls sin. Sin is turning away from God's design and pursuing our own way. And that leads us to brokenness. Brokenness eventually leads us to death. And this death will separate us from God forever. But God doesn't want us to stay in brokenness. So he's made a way out. And that way is Jesus. Jesus comes and he enters into our brokenness. And the death that we deserve for pursuing brokenness, Jesus takes our place and dies on a cross. And his body is broken for us. And three days after he dies, he rose from the dead and he made a way out of brokenness. And people try many things to get out of brokenness. Things like religion, things like success or relationships, education or drugs and alcohol. But none of these things can get us out of brokenness. The only way out is Jesus. And if we turn from our sin and believe that Jesus died for us and rose from the dead, we can leave brokenness and grow in a relationship with God and pursue His design. And more than that, we can go. We can be sent, just like Jesus, back into brokenness to help others come through Him to pursue God's design. Now, there's two types of people in the world. There are people that are pursuing God's design, and there's people that are still in brokenness. We have to ask ourselves, where are we? So, where do you think you are? Okay. Very simple explanation of what we call the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Are you prepared to use something like that little tool or or another one to explain your faith to someone? Um, I'll post that little video for you to review and be familiar with it this week. You'll catch it on our social media so that you can be prepared because future disciples come to faith through the word of believing disciples. And Jesus is praying for us here as he, the all-knowing Son of God, looks forward to future disciples who are yet to be born again, even yet to be born, and he sees that there are people coming to faith into the future. And the first thing that he prays for us is observable, impactful unity. Verse 21, he prays, that these future disciples may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So notice, Jesus is praying for us all, that we would all be one. In just a couple of verses, he's going to pray it again, and he's going to pray that we would be perfectly one. So there's no asterisk there, like for your sister-in-law who drives you mad, or for the guy at work who's just plain weird, or the girl at school who bothers you every day. 
Jesus doesn't put an asterisk there for hard, tough relationships in the church. He doesn't put an asterisk there for racial or political or geographical differences. We can't say, you know, I'm just going to be one with the people in my church or my denomination with people who look like me and think like me and vote like me. I'm going to be one of those people. Nope. No asterisks here. Jesus says that all of, our, all of his disciples are to be one. His great longing on the night that he was betrayed was that we, those who are yet to believe in him, would be one. All of us. And he's already prayed this once, right? Back in verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And you get a sense that by being kept in Jesus' name, kept faithful, or in the Father's name, rather, faithful to God, that's where we find our unity, right? In God, in our fidelity to God, not in lesser commonalities. This unity Jesus is talking about, it's God-centered, and it's God-like. Right? He goes on and says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So our unity is to reflect the oneness that is in the Trinity. The way the Father and Son are one, we are to be one. One in love, one in purpose. Right? This language of being in me and being in you and being in us, it takes us back to what Jesus taught earlier on this night in John 15 in the upper room about him being the vine and us the branches. He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So if we're gonna be one, we must abide in Christ. That's where our unity is, it's in Christ. Our unity is found in being centered on him, majoring in him, prioritizing him, exalting him, focusing on him, worshiping him, abiding in him. We will not be one if we do not make Christ the big deal, right? If that's not what matters most to us. And this unity that he's describing here, anchored in him, is to be seen by the world around us. Look at the, the last part of that verse. Father, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our unity convinces the world that Jesus was sent by God. You know, sometimes we wonder why evangelism is so hard. Maybe it's because we're not unified. And it's very similar to what Jesus said earlier. John 13, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We're known by our unity. We're known by our love. Clearly, then, this is a unity rooted in love for one another. Somehow, our loving unity is to be visible to the world. This makes evangelism a team sport, right? Something we do together. Our, we have a corporate witness together. There needs to be a way, a space, where lost folks see a guy wearing a MAGA hat sitting next to a lady wearing a don't blame me I voted for Hillary t-shirt. And they get along, right? They're here in the same room worshiping. They might even be singing the same row together worshiping. Being beyond civil, which would be a powerful testimony in and of itself these days, they actually love each other. See, we need spaces like that 
where the way we love one another can be on display. Um, Easter Sunday is one of those spaces, right? Your backyard or your deck when you have your small group over and your work friends over for a party is a better space for that where believers hang out and love one another in spite of our differences and because of our common faith in Christ. This is the heart of Jesus in this section of his prayer. He's going to repeat it in just a verse or two. He'll pray it again and again because it matters so much to him, and he wants to make sure that those of us who are eavesdropping on, our, on his prayer get it. Jesus longs for his people to be one and for the world to see it. Look at verse 22. The glory that you have given me, Father, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. When Jesus a couple of times here mentions glory, it's another thing on his heart. Twice he mentions it in the verses we're looking at today. Eight times in this prayer he mentions the idea of glory. Um, he wants us to see his glory, he'll say. He, we have his glory. Um, he says glory here is, is like a multifaceted idea, but at its core... It has to do with seeing the fullness of who Jesus is, that we'll grasp who Jesus really is as the Son of God. And His glory is going to be on full display in the days that follow this Thursday night where He's praying, on Good Friday when He goes to the cross, on Easter Sunday when He raises from the dead. Right? And so our unity again centers on Christ and His glory, not our lesser allegiances, it's in Christ, what we have together in Christ. The glory we see and share in Christ simply overwhelms our differences. It must, right? The goal, Jesus says, is perfect unity. He's praying for perfect unity, nothing less than that. So this has to be a priority for us, church, that we're unified, that we don't let things divide us. Um, The division of the world is always trying to seep into the church. And some of those big ways are obvious. Some of them are not so obvious. So when I, when I moved to Wake Forest over 30 years ago, this was a sleepy little town of 5,000 people. And in the middle of that sleepy little town of 5,000 people was a seminary. And when you have a, a fairly large school in the middle, Christian school in the middle of a sleepy little town, um, that's kind of a big dog in the yard. And so that created from time to time some division in the community over that school and what they did and did they pay taxes and things like that. Um, and so we had what they used to say, the townies versus the gownies. And it created a little, sometimes a little tension. Now the town has grown 10 times since then and um, it's, not, it's not no longer that kind of tension and very often in the community but you know what's funny to me it's not funny troubling to me is that sometimes that's crept into the church into our church um, which is really silly to even hear myself say it but on occasion we'll have uh, a seminary student who thinks they're all that and they bring in their Greek and Hebrew Bible and they're trotting it out in their life change class and they're impressing some folks probably one folk but they're impressing some folk and, 
you know, um, that kind of pride, it, it, it doesn't win friends in the church and doesn't unify us. And then there's people who are on the, on the townie side and they're like, those seminary students, they think they're so smart. I bet they can't even change a tire or a diaper. And you know, you might be right. They're probably smart. They may not be able to change a diaper or a tire. But, but you, know, you, you can't have that kind of attitude and honor Jesus' command to be one. You can't grumble about the students or the non-students. You can't. We can't have it. Um, you know, maybe, just maybe, you're here to help them learn how to change a tire and a diaper. Maybe that's why you're here. And to learn from them the, the beautiful things that they're so excited about learning. Now, some people deal with stressors like this, tensions in the air, whether they're little things like that or more significant things in our culture like race or politics or whatever, simply by leaving, right? They're going to find a church with more, that's more to their liking or more like them. And somehow I doubt that's what Jesus had in mind when he prayed that we would be perfectly one. And he says the world's watching. They're watching to see if we'll be one. A man named Westcott wrote this little saying, the unity of the church is the conviction of the world. Jesus talks about this over and over and over, and then he adds this stunning little phrase. Father, he says, you've loved them. I have loved them even as you have loved me, Father. And he says that kind of thing over and over. And back in verse chapter 15, he said it. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. You really are loved by Christ with the same love that God the Father has for his one and only Son. He passes the love of the Father along to you while the world watches. You're loved with love of the Trinity. There's an author, his name is Sky Jatani, and he tells a story to kind of help us try to get our, our arms around that. He says, have you ever found yourself at a party you stumbled into maybe uninvited or totally unexpected and just had a great time? He says, I was in Cooperstown, New York at the Baseball Hall of Fame on the weekend when three players were inducted. The night before the induction, there was a private red carpet reception at the Hall of Fame, and I was there, he says. He says, I'm not even a baseball fan, but there I was getting a picture with Cal Ripken, the former shortstop for the Baltimore Orioles, who still holds the record for starting in the most consecutive pro baseball games, an astounding 2,632 games in a row. There I was, chilling with former L.A. Dodgers manager Tommy Lasorda. I had a nice conversation with Johnny Bench, the former catcher who played in 14 All-Star games. There was Andre Dawson, Wade Boggs, Carlton Fisk. He says, I didn't even know who most of these guys were, but I had a great time. I had no right being there. I have friends, huge baseball fans, who would have killed for my place at the party. He said, how did I get in? He says, well, it turns out one of the inductees that year was a player named Deacon White. White played in the 1870s. He was one of the early superstars of baseball, an amazing athlete. And he says, I, it just so happens, I married his great-great-granddaughter. So we got invited to the VIP party at the Baseball Hall of Fame, and we had a great time. And then he says, friends, the Trinity is a party of love, 
joy, goodness, creativity, and glory that has been going on forever and it will continue forever and you and I have been invited to join it. Not because we've earned the right to be there, but because a long time ago, the Father sent the Son and the Son died so that our sin would not prevent us from joining it. And the Father raised him from the dead through the power of the Spirit. And if we put our faith in him, we too can be filled with the Spirit, raised from death to life, and join the Father, Son, and Spirit in this party that will never end. And for the world to believe that the invitation to this party is real, they have to see us enjoying the party together, right? Being lovingly one in Christ as the Father and the Son. This is what Jesus is praying for. This beautiful, beautiful oneness. This love that he has for us. But in the next verse, he prays another thing that's just as beautiful. He says in verse 24, Father, I desire that they, these future disciples also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. It's a very, very, it's a very, very subtle thing, but notice Jesus really wants to enjoy the company of these future disciples, right? He wants our company. This is the steadfast teaching of the New Testament. Teaches it over and over again. Mark 3, Jesus is picking disciples. He appoints 12, whom he also named apostles. Why does he pick them? So that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast demons. And of course, we get that he sent them out to preach and they had authority to cast demons. But did you catch that first reason he picked them? That they might be with him. Jesus would later call these men his friends. He desires our company. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul's writing, he says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. One of the great purposes of Jesus' death is that we might live with him forever. He desires our company. Revelation, in a famous verse, we read, Behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus wants to share a meal with his church. And this church that he's talking about here is the lukewarm church in Laodicea. It's not a great church. He wants their company. Revelation 21, the Bible ends on this note. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. See, the, the end to which all of history is moving, according to God's good plan, is that we would be with him forever. The whole story of Scripture is the telling of the unfolding restoration of God's undeserving, wayward people to the company of God that we lost back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus wants you and me. He wants us, his church, to be with him forever. He wants us to be with him where he's going, there to see the fullness of his glory 
Glory that he surrendered when he became one of us. But glory that has returned to him as he's gone back to the right hand of God the Father. And that glory somehow puts on display the love of the Father for his Son. And Jesus again says, he loves us like that. Same love as the Father loves his Son. So he loves us. Same, same. And this is the teaching, the idea that Jesus really does want our company that's transformative for our daily devotions, right? That time we set aside to read our Bible and pray. Because when we think about it this way, they cease to be simply something we do and they become someone we meet. And that someone is none other than Jesus himself. Gosh, it's been decades ago, there was a little pamphlet that was written called My Heart, Christ's Home by uh, Robert Boyd Munger. And he tells the story of a new believer whose life is like a house. And he's inviting Jesus into the different rooms of the house to kind of take ownership there with him. And first he goes to the library, which is the life of the mind. And then he goes to the dining room, which are the appetites and desires. And then the next room is the living room. And he describes it this way. He says, we walk next into the living room. This room was rather intimate and comfortable. I liked it. Had a fireplace, overstuffed chairs, a sofa, and a quiet atmosphere. He says, Jesus also seemed pleased with it. He said, this is indeed a delightful room. Let us come here often. It's secluded and quiet, and we can fellowship together. Well, naturally, as a young Christian, he says, I was thrilled. I couldn't think of anything I would rather do than have a few minutes with Christ in intimate companionship. Jesus promised, I will be here early every morning. Meet me here and we'll start the day together. So morning after morning, he says, I would come downstairs to the living room and Jesus would take a book of the Bible from the bookcase. He would open it and then we would read together. He would tell me of its riches and unfold to me its truths and he would make my heart warm as he revealed his love and his grace he had toward me. These were wonderful times together. In fact, we called the living room the withdrawing room and it was a period when we had our quiet times together. But little by little, under the pressure of many responsibilities, this time started getting shortened. Why, he says, that I don't know. But I thought I was just too busy to spend time with Christ. This is not intentional, but it just happened that way. Finally, not only was the time shortened, but I began to miss a day now and then. It was examination time at the university. Then there was some other urgent emergency. I would miss it two days in a row and often more. I remember one morning when I was in a hurry, rushing downstairs, eager to be on my way. As I passed the living room, the door was open, and looking in, I saw a fire in the fireplace, and Jesus was sitting there. And suddenly, in dismay, I thought to myself, he was my guest. I invited him into my life. He has come as Lord of my home, and yet here I am neglecting him. I turned and went in, and with downcast glance, I said, blessed master, forgive me. Have you been here all these mornings? Yes, he said. I told you I would be here every morning to meet with you. He had been faithful in spite of my faithlessness. I asked his forgiveness, and he readily forgave me as he does when we are truly repentant. The trouble, he said, with you is this. You have been thinking of the quiet time of the Bible study and prayer time as a factor in your own spiritual progress, but you've forgotten that this hour means something to me also. Remember, I love you. I have redeemed you at great cost. I value your friendship. Now, he said, do not neglect this hour, if only for my sake. Whatever else may be your desire, remember, I want your company. Jesus wants our company, right? 
Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. There's a day coming when we'll see the fullness of Christ's glory and it will shout to us of the love of the Father for the Son, the very love with which we are loved. And our prayer, Jesus' prayer, closes with these two verses. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So the disciples know that Jesus is sent from the Father. But the world does not, and this is untenable to Jesus, right? He wants the world to know too. And so he makes the name of the Father, the character and identity of the Father known to his disciples. And he's going to continue to do that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of these future disciples that he's praying for. Once again, Jesus prays that his love might be in us, the same love that the Father loves the Son with. This is the second time he's prayed this. It's the fourth time he's taught about it in this farewell teaching. Jesus really wants us to get how much he loves us. And then he might be in us, he says, by the work of his ever-present spirit within his people. He's fulfilling the promise that God will dwell with his people forever. And if you listen closely, you hear how a different set of three circles is at work here, right? The North Wake three circles that come from the great commandment Jesus gave. Our love for God is circle one. And here we hear Jesus praying that we would grasp the glory of Christ. We're kept in the Father's name. We're loved by him. And so we love him back. And circle two is our love for the church. And so we love one another. And we are one as a result. And that spills over into circle three, love for neighbor, where the world notices our oneness and our love and is convinced that Jesus really is sent from the Father. Jesus wants us to be in such vibrant communion with him, knowing the fullness of his love, even for the likes of us, that we are ever more becoming one in a way that the world can see and come to believe that Jesus was truly sent by the Father. That's how the church is like termite, right? We're building a cathedral together with doors open for the world to see. If you would, let's bow together as we prepare to approach and remember Christ's love for us at the table. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for praying for us. Thank you that in your all-knowingness, the future is known to you and you could look down and see us by name. And you prayed that we would know your love, that we'd see your glory, we'd be kept in the Father's name, we'd be one as a result. And the world would see and know that you were sent by God. Oh Lord, make it so. And together now as your people, we remember your glory and your love and the unity that you call us to in this meal. And we pray, Jesus, in your name. So together we do remember Jesus' glory on that cross in his humiliation, on the third day in his resurrection. We remember that as we take this table together. We remember his love 
that he loved us to the end and laid his life down for us. And we do this together as God's people, one, one church, part of one great church that belongs to Jesus. And so think on these things as you come to celebrate the table. The table at North Wake is open to anyone who's a follower of Jesus who's willing to confess their sins and come and worship Christ and remember him in this way. If you're not yet a Christian, and the most important thing you could do with these few moments is to pray and turn to Christ and place your trust and hope in him. Right? Now, as we come to the table today, I'd like you to use the center aisle and the two wall aisles to...